So your bulletin says that we're in Acts chapter 9. That's the template every week when we open it that we made a long time ago. And so you can see how old the bulletin template is back when we're in Acts 9. We're not in Acts 9. We're not making some crazy jump. Rodney wanted to know, he thought it's going to be interesting to see how you go from, from the prodigal son to jumping to Luke or Acts 9. And, and we're not, Rodney. We're not making that jump. Um, so we're in Luke, Luke chapter 15. We're going to be beginning in verse 11 here in a minute. So uh, head that way. And just as a reminder, the situation we're dealing with here is that there are sinners and there are tax collectors and they are gathering around Jesus, wanting to hear from them, from him, wanting to learn what he has to say, interested in all that. And the Pharisees are seeing this and they're just absolutely appalled that Jesus is permitting this to happen, that he's receiving them. And, and so Jesus tells these three parables and the three parables are directed at the Pharisees for their self-righteousness, for their, not, uh, their, their lack of love, their lack of seeing these things right, and we'll see that. So uh, hopefully you remember last week we looked at two of these parables, the lost coin, the lost sheep. Uh, this week we're looking at the third parable, and like the previous two parables, it does indeed teach that, G, that, that God is a merciful Father who rejoices uh, along with all of heaven when a lost sinner is found and returned home to him. Uh, but this one's a bit more nuanced. There is, there is a lot to learn in this parable. Now, you, you've probably heard it referred to, right? Whether you've ever opened a Bible or not, it's so part of our natural, just wider culture even, this term, the prodigal son, right? This, uh, and it's interesting because if you look at the passage, you won't find the word prodigal anywhere in there, which raises the question, how many of you know what the word prodigal actually means? There's not a whole lot of hands up. Um, it's a word that we know how to use in a sentence, but we don't always know what it means. Prodigal means someone who spends money and or resources recklessly and wastefully. Um, so don't use this as a way of accusing people of being prodigals at this point, but you kind of can see. Well, when we get into this, you'll see it. Anyway, let's, let's just get to the passage, and I'll let you know right off the bat uh, we are going to read the entire passage in one go today, which is not how we usually do things. Uh, it's 2020. Everything's different this year. Uh, so let's just go with that. So it's a long passage. Follow along, though, beginning in, in verse 11 of Luke 15. Uh, he at the beginning is Jesus. <clears throat> and he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of, one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw, saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. 
For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And and he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have, you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when, his son, when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for... For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this parable is as dense and wonderful as fudge. Uh, We ask this morning that you'd awaken our minds to understand which... um, what your word says. To to even understand which which son our, our heart might drift towards. And make us to see, Lord, if, if we are in Christ, we are loved so dearly by you. You who are merciful and welcoming and a loving Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I feel like I have permission to get a drink every once in a while today. It's not whiskey, it's water. I said a drink. It always sounds like it's alcohol when you say a drink. Um, so anyway, here's a son. And, and the son is just sick of his father. He's, he's fed up with his family. He's done working on this farm. He's, he just wants to get out of there. He wants to leave so he can do whatever he wants to do with whoever he wants to do it, right? And, and so he asks for his share of the property that's going to be his at, at a later date. Now see, the Jewish law says that when a father dies, the firstborn son is entitled to two-thirds of all of the father's property. That's, that's his by right. Now, the second son would receive everything that's left. And I'm told by math people that means that he would receive a third of everything uh, at that point. Now, the problem is that his father's still alive. And so the question becomes, well, well how can I get what I want in the future while my father's still alive? Now, there was a, a stipulation in the law where the father could give the right of the property to the son even before his death. And in that instance, here's what happened. Um, the father would continue to work it. He would still continue to get profits from it. It still was his land until the day he died. Uh, but the son could actually sell those rights of the land to someone else outside of the family and take the money for that now. In, in that case, the moment the father dies, the land that would have become the son now becomes the person who bought it. Does that make sense to you? That's complex financial things from my mind. Hopefully you're able to follow on that. You probably got that fine. Um, And and so while there is a legal way to do this, right? He's not breaking the law in doing this. It it was highly insulting to the father to take what what they have built up over generation and generation that the whole family is living off to to take that and and want to go and sell it like this. And in one sense, it's it's like saying, dad, you're just not dying fast enough for me to get what I want from you. 
a huge insult. And so, and indeed, the son sells his family's land for cash, probably not as much as he could get due to the short, short notice. Uh, and he leaves for the far country because he desires this, this false sense of freedom. That's what he's going after, right? Namely, he wants the freedom to sin. And, and so he runs away from his family. He runs away from this wider community that knows him and cares about him. And, and he pursues these worldly experiences and these worldly pleasures that he thinks are going to bring him some joy in life. Now, uh, seven years, we, we were in youth ministry, and, and I will say, it was not common, but we did watch a few children do something similar to this. As, as they would graduate high school and go away to college, uh, we'd find that they refused to associate with any of their Christian friends anymore. You'd find that they, uh, they put a big distance between their family and them, right? And, and, and they would go into college with this goal of just living a life of depravity that was funded by their parents' ba- bank account back home. Um, and, 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 and so we, we can kind of see how that even works today then. Now, at the heart, <clears throat> the son in our parable wants what his father can provide him, but he really doesn't want anything to do with the father. And that's, that's the really heartbreaking thing here. He severs that relationship, uh, taking the cash, but leaving his father, staring off in the distance, watching his son disappear from sight. And so then the son goes and he lives it up and the text says he squandered his property in in reckless living. He recklessly spends everything he has and remember that's the reason this whole thing is called the prodigal son. That's where he gets this nickname from that uh, no one wants. Uh, And unlike the the coin and the sheep in the previous parables that we saw, what's interesting here is that the son, he, he gets lost because he wants to be lost, right? He, he follows the desires of his heart. He has defiantly walked away from his father, from, from that place. Uh, and, and remember, the father represents God in this parable. Now, the question is, do you, do you ever live like the son here? I mean, if you really get down to the heart of it, do you ever find in your life that you're wanting what God can give you, but you don't know if you really want God, you're wanting to go and live the way you want to live, to spend your money and your, you know, unselfish, maybe even sinful things. And, and, and you begin to think that way. And maybe, maybe you're wondering, you know, is it, is it possible that we are prodigals in, in the sense that we are squandering our time and resources that God has given us in ways that are simply worthless? And you know the answer. It's absolutely possible. In fact, I, I think if you're like me, it's the reason that last line in the uh, that line in the last stanza of Come Thou Fount, which we're not singing today, missed opportunity, um, it, it resonates with us so strongly, right? The, the prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, right? That's written for even a, a Christian worship service because we can relate to that statement. Now, unsurprisingly, things don't go well for him. There's this famine in the land which is really going to be a great blessing in his life, but there's not a chance he sees it. He might see it later in life, but he won't for a very long time. Uh, for now, though, he, he can't find work, and so he eventually goes and works for this pig farmer. And, and you might wonder, why in the world is that little bit of information? This is the parable. It's a story Jesus is making up, right? <clears throat> to, to teach something. It's there because uh, the Pharisees that are listening to this story, they already don't like the prodigal son. Now, this gives them even more reason not to like them because any, any good Jewish man, woman, whoever, would never touch pigs. And here he is in desperation just spending his time with pigs. And, and so the, surely the Pharisees see that and they think, oh, like, like, we do not like this prodigal. We, we have n- n- no, no love for him. 
And, and then things get so bad that the son finds himself wishing that he could actually eat the pig's food. And, and that's the moment of rock bottom because you see there in verse 17, right? He, it says he came to himself. He realizes, right, I can't remain where I am. Something has to change at this point. And it also occurs to him at the same moment that the servants in his father's house actually live pretty well, right? The, the very servants, the slaves. And so he has this plan. It, it, it's a good plan, right? Verse 18, look at this. He says, I will arise. This is his plan. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And it seems good. And I know we read that at first and think, oh, good for him. He's going back home. But, but, but did you notice it's really just the right words at this point? That he's still seeing his father as just a means to an end, as, 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 as a way to get what he wants, namely a better position in life, a better financial situation than he's currently in. Now, it, it's interesting that you, you, you hear this, this prayer of his, I have sinned against heaven and before you. There's one other place in the scriptures where, where someone says that prayer, almost, uh, almost word for word, not exactly, but it's the only other place we see it. It's in Exodus 10, 16. You don't need to turn there. Uh, Pharaoh after the eighth plague, after the locusts come and they devour everything, Pharaoh says almost these same words to, to Aaron and Moses, right? And, and if you know the story of, uh, of the plagues, then you know that Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's repentance is not genuine. Pharaoh sees these, these locusts that's destroying everything and he wants it to stop. He's willing to say whatever it might be to get what he wants, which is for the plague to stop. And, and you see, that's the son's plan as well. He's being manipulative. He wants to manipulate his father. Sadly, because he believes that he could never be received as a son again. And so he's aiming at this lower level. He, he's scheming to simply be permitted as one of his servants. He, he still doesn't see that what he needs is a restored relationship with his father. Or, or, or maybe he doesn't believe it's even possible after all he's done, that he understands it at least that far, uh, that it's impossible that he could ever be forgiven. You see, he's, he's failed to understand the, the love of his father. Now, it's not hard to imagine. It's not in the passage exactly, except for the fact that the passage, uh, the father later sees him right when he shows up. But you can imagine every time he, he walks past whatever part of the house or property where you can see the road, he, you know, looking down in the hopes, well, maybe, maybe today I'll, I'll see my son returning. I've listened to many parents with grown children over the years share deep sadness they have because a child has severed a relationship with them. There's all kinds of reasons. Uh, some children refuse to answer phone calls. Some are, find themselves in uh, deep drug or alcohol addictions, and it's just heartbreaking to their parents. Uh, many parents blame themselves when these situations. Most have no idea where it went wrong, but nearly every single one of them want nothing more than to restore that relationship, to have that relationship with their grown child again. You see, the, the father here never severed the relationship with, with the child, does he? Uh, the father doesn't disown his son. In fact, the father is going through all the suffering in this moment. He's just hoping for the return of his son. And, and then finally, the son does in fact return. He returns with, with nothing to offer his father, nothing except the, the need of his father, nothing except the need of food and clothing, and, and mostly the need to be forgiven by his father, even if he doesn't believe it's possible. That's a picture of how we come to God, with nothing, absolutely nothing, except the need of God, of redemption. 
James Smith in uh, his book On the Road with, with St. Augustine, Lance Crandall, who's on Zoom down there somewhere, uh, is the reason I had to read this book. It was a good book, though. Uh, anyway, he puts the reader in, in the mind of the prodigal at this very point, and he, and he puts it this way. He says, you're so despondent, you can't even voice it. You, you nonetheless wonder timidly, desperately, would my father ever take me back? By some grace inexplicable, you start on your way back home, and as you're yet again rehearsing a long speech that is three parts apology and two parts legal plea for reinstatement, you're, you're bowled over when that father of yours comes running and gathers you up in his arms while your head is still down. Smith goes on to say that we're all prodigals, and the question that we need to be asking ourselves as a result of that is, what if I went home to God? The father hasn't forgotten him, has he? he? He does indeed see his son coming. He's been waiting for this moment, and he runs, and, and that's a big deal. It was really undignified behavior uh, for a grown man to, to, to go running. Remember, they're wearing robes. He'd have to pull them up and, and, and run, and it was just considered an incredibly uh, undignified. But in his exuberant joy, that's what he does as he takes off to go and see his son. And, and notice this. It's important as we, we look at this and understand understand that the parable of what Jesus is trying to teach us that the father acts first he goes to the son even before the planned speech of the son even begins and his father does not cross his arms when he comes back like many of us might be tempted to do right resentfully asking and 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 where have you been right what you need more money something of that long something you know fatherly and snarky in no way does he ever say anything like I, I told you so or even resembling that. And, and welcoming his son is, is not contingent upon the son's repentance first. And there's a good reason for that. It, it, it's because in God's glorious sovereignty, grace precedes repentance. I mean, look at the text in front of you. The father's kiss is not a response to reconciliation in this story. His kiss is, is the cause, the catalyst, the, the first move of reconciliation. You, you see it there. Only after the father's embrace, verse 20, do we see the son genuinely repent, verse 21. The same words, but, but this time he's not trying to manipulate this time he's responding to the father's embrace with a contrite confession and with genuine repentance. So remember, it's, his father is not the one who took the money and went and squandered it. His, his father is not the one who went and pursued hedonism in a faraway land. His father didn't make the son, you know, stoop to feeding pigs or, or to put him in a position where he's now coveting their food. But the father continued to love the son and welcomes him home at first opportunity. Many of you know, Tim Keller wrote a, uh, a book on this parable called The Prodigal God. Uh, and now that you know what prodigal means, you're probably thinking that's a terrible uh, title for it, right? The Reckless Love as Adam's favorite song. It's not his favorite song. He wants me to be sure about that probably. Um, the reason Tim Keller titles that is that there's actually this, this second definition of the word prodigal that has nothing to do with, with wasting resources, but everything to do with lavishing resources, right? That it's spent in a good way, generously. The, the father lavishes his son uh, when he returns home, and, and for good reason. If you look at the end of verse 21 here, the son genuinely is saying, I am no longer worthy 
to be called your son. And then in verse 22, we see that, that ankle-breaking shift of direction phrase, right? But the father, everything changes right there. He, he actually cuts off his, his son's statement, uh, his confession at that point. He cuts it off and he lavishes him with this list of things. And every single one of the things in that list that you're reading there signifies sonship. That's the whole point of the list, right? As a, uh, and so as the son is in the, in the midst of saying, I am not worthy to be your son, the father is saying, but you are my son. You are my son. That's who you are. That, that's who I welcome you back to be. And his actions prove it, right? The, the best robe signifies that, that he's a son. The, the family members had these robes, not everyone. The, the ring was a sign of, of the family authority. The, the shoes for him, because slaves did not wear shoes. It was something only a freedman would wear. All these symbolic things so that everyone knows this is my son. The, the fatted calf was being raised for a special occasion. And, and here's the father saying, there is no more special occasion than, than your return. And then they celebrate, because his son is back and the father is glad. And you can, you can see the image here then of, uh, of, of God's children, right? Elect before the foundation of the world, seeing a coming home. He, he embraces us. He lavishes us as sons. How's that? Is that less gross? So now while the first two parables only tell the story of God restoring sinners and rejoicing at their salvation. This third one actually goes a step further. The, the third parable adds this, this dimension of the older brother who represents the arrogant Pharisees who, remember, they have no joy in seeing God redeem the sinners and the tax collectors, collectors and the people they're looking down on. The, the, the older brother here is, is the good son, right? This is the son that most people uh, would look at and be like, what a great son. I wish I had a son like that son. Um, and here he is out in the field after a day of what? Serving his father, doing what he's supposed to do. Uh, in the fields, he's heading home and he can hear music and he can see dancing in the distance. And at some point, he begins to wonder what in the world's going on because that sure looks like a party. But if they're a party, surely I would know about it. I'm the son, right? And, and so he asks the servant who informs him, yeah, it is a party. That brother that you don't like, well, he's back. And your dad has killed that fatted calf. We've been really making fats. I don't know what that is. Um, and we're excited. And so they're, they're doing that. And this is the moment when, when, when really the older brother's true heart begins to kind of seep through that shiny facade that he's probably able to put on at, at most points. And he's so angry, right? He won't even go in and celebrate. I want nothing to do with that. I'm not going to take part in that. Because he thinks, you know what? The, the younger brother needs to pay for his sins. He's supposed to get what's coming to him. Dad shouldn't even let him return. And here he's throwing a party. Anyone with a sibling at least can relate to this on some level. You know, angry when your, your brother or your sister gets some special privilege that you didn't get, right? You, you bought her ice cream when she went to the store with you. I go to the store with you all the time. You never buy me ice cream. Like, you know, even worse when we're waiting for, you know, that dad is going to like lay into her. She is going to get disciplined so bad. And, and then you don't see what you expect to happen. That, that's that moment when, when kind of the worst of us comes out. Here the, the father goes out to the older brother. You notice that? He doesn't just leave him to stew. He actually goes out to the older brother as well. Not to rip into him like most of us would do. How dare you? You don't have any idea all the things I do. Like, you know, that's the way we tend to want to do it as parents. But, but, but he entreats him is what the ESV says, right? That, that's the Greek word you may have heard before, parakaleo. 
meaning to, to, to come along, to comfort, to encourage. He, he wants to bring the, the older brother along so he can stop being so bitter and self-righteous out in the field and come in and enjoy the, the, the celebration here. He, he wants the older son to be reconciled and so he might enjoy the celebration. And, and in this moment... But what we begin to see, even worse now, is that the older brother's secret resentment is, is just comes pouring out like some bitter vinegar. His good son mask is slipping off and, and his heart is just kind of laid bare there, even if he didn't want it to be. You know, listen to his own words. I mean, first of all, he doesn't even address the father as the father. He says, look, right? He says, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, right, he's not my brother, when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? What in the world? He's pridefully declaring, can't you see I'm the better son? And, and if we, you already know your, your pre, you know, disposition against him, but, but some of us, if you're honest, you might be thinking, well, he's right. He is the better son. In fact, why in the world is the father actually rewarding such reckless living? Why is he rewarding sin and selfishness? It's not a reward. It's a celebration. Because the father loves the son. He, he loves them both, in fact. The, the older brother here, you know, sees his relationship with his father as a, a slave or a servant to a master who, who deserves a reward for being so good, right? But it's never been about that. That was never the point, and that's the problem with the older son that he, he just doesn't get. And in other words, you know, the, the older son is missing what the younger son was missing, that their father loves them not for what they can do for the father, but because they're his sons. He just loves them. And again, do you notice that both sons really want the father's gift, but they don't want the gift of fellowship with their father? Even the goat here is specifically so he can go out and enjoy the goat with his friends. It has nothing to do with his father. And the parable ends with the, the father telling him, all that's mine is, is yours. It's always been. In, in other words, I've never withheld anything from you. And the father doubles down. He doesn't apologize or, or try to walk it back that he's celebrating with the younger son and, at his return, but he confirms, you know, this was the right thing to do. He, he was dead and now he's alive. He, he was lost and now he's found. Like, what I'm doing is the right thing and you need to come join us. Jesus telling this parable uh, initially, is telling it initially for the benefit of the Pharisees. Don't forget that. That's the context here. Who, who, who because they, they cannot see their, their own need of grace, they, they also have grace for nobody else. They have no love for their, their Jewish brothers. They don't even want to see them come to faith. And Jesus wants them to know that his heavenly father is welcoming home the lost sons of Israel. And now's the time for you to confess. Now's the time for you to change. Now's the time for you to come along and, and join rejoicing at the grace of God. Earlier I, I quoted from, from Smith and when he said that we're all prodigals. And of course he's, he's right on some level. But some of us are also more like the older brother. In fact, this is observation, not some f fact otherwise. Um, but I, I have noticed that most of us that have walked with the Lord Jesus for a longer period of time, we, we tend to become the older brother. We tend to kind of, <laughs> this is shocking to you. Um, we, we tend to kind of forget 
where we came from. We, we couldn't forget how desperately we needed a Savior. We, we, and, you know, we, we really kind of stop forgetting that we don't deserve the grace of God. Namely, what we do deserve is, is death and hell. And what we've been given in Christ is grace and forgiveness and eternal life and all that belongs to our Heavenly Father. It's, a, it's amazing. Now, if you think you're not the older brother, let me ask you this. Who are the people that you have turned your heart against? Is there a specific person that comes to mind when you think of this? Someone who did something terrible to you, something terrible to a loved one uh, of yours, and, and you think, or you know, let me just ask, could, could you rejoice if God redeemed that person? Could you rejoice? That, that person that you are just most inclined to hate for good reason. Or, or are there categories of people that you don't want to be saved by Jesus? Let's, let's get straight to it. Like terrorists, pedophiles, rapists. I can hear people. That's probably a weird thing to walk by and hear. Are there people that would be in those, those categories where you're, where you're kind of beginning to think, you know, yeah, those people do not deserve the grace of God, but pretty much everybody else does. And, and that starts to make sense to you. That's a pretty good statement. Well, you see what happens when we start to think that way is, is, is this. I, I bet we all have a list of people who deserve the grace of God and those who don't. But that's not the way God works. That's not the way God sees it. There's only one list. It's, it's maybe, in fact, hopefully, really, the only list that your name and Adolf Hitler's name are on the same list, right? Those who do not deserve the grace of God. We, we're all on the, the list of those who do not deserve the grace of God. The, the younger brother and the older brother are on the same list. They are both unworthy to be called sons. And, and, and so truly, let me ask you, how's your heart in this area? Would you rejoice in the grace of God as the, if the police officer who murdered George Floyd comes to faith and repents, or do you want him to get what he deserves? Let me go another direction. Or, or would you rejoice if God redeemed the whole group of violent rioters who have been destroying cities? Would you rejoice at their salvation? Would you go to a, a party celebrating this newly, uh, you know, their newly established faith in Christ? Or, or are you more, more concerned to, to see people get what you think they might deserve? And I, and I ask this because the way we respond is a, a good test of how, what, how well we really understand the grace of God to us. To us. B.B. Uh, Warfield once wrote this. He said, The Father in heaven has no righteous children on earth. His grace is needed for all, and most of all, for those who dream they have no need of it. And so we come home to God through Jesus, right? The empty tomb, uh, the cross, this is where, you know, it is all secured for us. And so if your faith is in, in, in Jesus, you were lost and now you are found. You were dead and now you are alive. Um, not because you deserve it in any sense. If you don't understand anything else, understand this. It's not because you deserve it. It's because it, it gives our Heavenly Father joy to lovingly welcome home, pursue and welcome home his children. There's one thing, last thing I want you to notice here. Did you ever, you notice here, Jesus never tells us how the older brother responds. It's just this, this hanging in, like where's the rest of the story? 
And you have to believe it's, a, it's an intentionally unfinished parable because Jesus doesn't usually do this. It's, it's open-ended so that the Pharisees have to, have to ask what, what, what the end of their own story is. They have to see themselves in that and know that, you know, this, this is where some change can happen. They, they, they can see, in fact, they are the older brother, but what are they going to do? Continue to foolishly think themselves so much better than those sinners, so much better than those tax collectors, or, or to see themselves as the self-righteous sinners they've been and, and to go with their father into the singing, into the dancing, and the celebrating, and the, the finding of the lost, uh, and, and, and finding of, of the lost and the, life, and the life of the dead, or the life returning to the dead, right? It's, it's open-ended to you and I as, as well. That's, that's the, the long-term point here, right? This, this passage is, is good for us. It's good for both kinds of sinners, in fact, which is, is who we are. Philip Ryken says this, like the prodigal son, some of us are lawbreakers. We like to wander into the far country of sin. Others are more like the elder brother. We pride ourselves on keeping the law, even though our hearts may be just as far from the Father's love. And I know that I am both kinds of sinners, and maybe you are too. And so then, what a great passage this is, because it, 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 it gives hope to sinners like us. But whether we have wandered away to the far country of sin, or whether we have stayed near and stewing in our self-righteous pride, there, there is grace to be found. That's what we see here. There is a Father who, who loves us, and, and through the gospel, will always welcome us home to himself. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, it's hot in here. You know that. It's part of your good providence. We don't know why. Um, but we thank you that we've been able to gather and worship you and we get to continue to do so through singing. Um, Father, if we're honest, some of us are the younger brothers rebelling against you or wanting to rebel against you, running after sinful pleasures and away from you. Others of us are older brothers who, like the servants, um, believing we have earned something instead of living like sons and daughters who are loved simply because we are yours. Most of us are both, Lord. May we find joy in returning to your open arms. And, and Lord, as a covenant family, we ask that you would you'd make us people who seek out and welcome prodigals, whose return you are sovereignly awaiting. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.